You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, visit simplify.us. No simplified funds will be discussed during this podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today, I've got my friend Brent Johnson on. Brent Johnson is the founder of Santiago Capital. Brent, it is awesome to have you here. Brent is also very well known for his work on the dollar milkshake theory and this market who better to have on than Brent Johnson to talk about the dollar and everything that's going on um Brent once again thank you so much for being on happy to be here Suri thanks for the invite yep and then before we start you know what's what uh how is the move from California to Puerto Rico because I think this is the this is the first time we're actually doing a podcast uh with you joining from PR so yeah so so I moved here a year ago and it's been a great year. Um, you know, there's a few bumps along the way, but overall, very happy here. You know, my family moved here as well. My son uh, did very good in school. You know, made the honor roll, made a bat the basketball team. They won their basketball championship, and it's awesome. Um, you know, we've made friends, and it's 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 a great quality of life. People here are fantastic, and it's just a beautiful island. So it's uh, not too much to complain about. Yeah. Do you do do you miss anything about California? Well, I mean, I miss my friends and stuff that are yeah. back there. And I mean, I think California is one of the, well, geographically and far as nature and stuff, it's one of the most incredible places in the world. Um, you know, that said, there's some problems there and the trend is not really great from an economic perspective. And I, I was just ready for a change and ready for an adventure. And, you know, so uh, I, I try to look forward and not look back, but, uh, you know. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. All right, Brent, you know, uh, now moving to markets. Um, so over the last few weeks, we've seen one, a big correction or big bear market, a uh, bit of a bear market in equities. And, you know, we're watching the dollar, we're seeing stuff like dollar yen, you know, go through the roof. So, you know, what are you, what are, you know, what are you seeing in markets? What are you watching and what are you thinking? Yeah, well, I think there's more pain to come uh, in, in the very, to, to really summarize it. Um, you know, I, I was expecting equities to pull back. I mean, Suri, you know that over the years ahead, I expect equities to go much higher. Um, but I've always said that even though I think equities will go much higher long term, it's going to be punctuated by terrifying drawdowns along the way. And I think that's kind of what we're in right now. Um, I, I was actually expecting the um, drawdown to come earlier than it has. I was kind of expecting it last year at some point, and it just never came. But this year, it's kind of come and come with a vengeance. And when you go up as fast as we went up and as far as we went up, um, you know, pain, you know, drawdowns are going to be painful. And, and, you know, I think equity markets are down anywhere from 15 to 50%, depending on which one you're looking at and which one you're measuring. Mm -hmm. And that that's pretty significant, right? Um, you know, technology is definitely in a bear, bear market. The S&P is kind of right on the edge. And I think the Dow might just be kind of outside of one. But it, long story short is that, you know, we're kind of in one of these hard drawdowns. We're kind of trending towards a recession. I think a recession is likely. Uh, I'm not somebody who's certain. I, you know, I talked to a number of people who are absolutely certain we're going to have a recession, and maybe we are. I'm not not arguing that, but I'm I'm not certain of it. And um, so we just kind of have to to wait and see how it goes. Um, this last sell-off has been pretty painful. Well, what's interesting 
and, and is you know we, we've had three I think now bear market rallies or or, or rallies this year that have been in the eight to ten percent range, right. and uh, the one in March was really strong, and then the one at the end of April was really strong. You know, in between there, we had the big drawdowns, and then you know we've had this big drawdown again, and sentiment is really really low right now. Now it doesn't mean we can't go lower in the short term. And when I say, say I'm talking equities right now, um, but we're, we're going to be due for another one of these, you know, vicious bear market rallies at some point, just because sentiment is so low. Now, after we get through that bear market rally, I do think in the fall, we'll probably have even more trouble. Um, and I, I think ultimately, you know, six to nine months from now, equities are probably lower than they are right now. Got it, got it. Yeah. And, and you know, when it comes to a policy standpoint, so what we're seeing right now, um, as opposed to, say, 2018, is that we're seeing the coordinated, synchronized hiking cycle from central banks. And a lot of people have argued that what the central banks are doing right now may be a policy mistake. So, you know, what, what, you know, what are your thoughts on that? You know, do you, do you agree with that notion that, one, you know, the central bank is sort of killing one, uh, you know, not a... Uh, um, immature you know, growth cycle for example yeah. or that you know, they or uh, that you know what's uh, the inflation right now is being caused by supply shocks which are which are beyond the control yeah. of central banks and so raising rates is not well, I think I, so you know what, what, what are your thoughts well i think they should be raising rates um i and because i think they can and as long as they can raise rates i think they should raise rates um you know, the, are they going to cause a recession? Probably. <laughs> That's what they typically do. You know, central, you know, I think, I can't remember if we may have spoken about this before, Sari. So if I'm repeating myself, I apologize. But, you know, central banks are reactionary agencies. Um, they are always going to be a little bit behind the curve because they are the lender of last resort. They're not the lender of first resort or the spender of first resort. And, you know, they typically wait till things are in a recession or that, you know, they, they do something that causes a recession and then they, they come in and they act and they, they, they react to that recession and then they typically go overboard and then you get a boom and then they typically pull away the punch bowl and then they cause it to go back down. And, you know, I think you could make the argument that rather than reacting to the, to the business cycle, they cause the business cycle. Um, but they're still a reactionary agency. Um, you know, they're never going to, um, in my opinion, they're, they're, they're never going to be in front of the curve. It would be very, very rare for them to be in front of the curve. Um, and so as far as a policy mistake, I mean, you could argue, the problem here is that if you start saying this is a policy mistake, well, then you can say, well, the policy mistake was actually two years ago. And if you say the policy mistake was actually two years ago, well, then you can say it was actually 10 years ago. You know, it's kind of like original sin. Where, where did it actually start? You know, you can trace this all the way back to the beginning. Right. So, um, you know, I, I am more worried about a policy mistake outside the United States than a policy mistake inside the United States. Um, I, I constantly hear the Fed this, the Fed that, the Fed this, the Fed that, and I get it. Uh, the Fed is the, you know, kind of the central bank to the United States and the central, you know, the Fed is kind of the central bank to the whole world in some ways. And so I understand the focus on the, on the Fed, but, you know, there's other central banks out there too. And I would argue that they're making as many or potentially bigger mistakes than the U.S. is. Um, and I think the U.S. would maybe potentially ultimately have to react to those mistakes as opposed to reacting to their own mistakes. Um, you know, you mentioned something a little bit ago that uh, central bank policy is kind of being coordinated again. 
you know, it was coordinated coming out of COVID. And then we've kind of had a little bit of uh, divergent monetary policy where the U.S. started being hawkish earlier than, than others. Now we've seen some central banks start to, to raise rates, Australia, Canada, um, you know, a number of Brazil, some other of these uh, smaller peripheral countries. But within the core, within the core, the interesting thing is we've got divergent monetary policy. Um, the ECB is still doing QE. The Bank of Japan is not only doing QE, they're doing unlimited yield curve control. Right. And that's causing huge pressures in the global markets because, um, you know, the yen is down something like 15 or 20 percent for the year against the dollar, which is a huge move for a major currency. And, you know, the, the, central, the, 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 the central Bank of Japan came out the other day and kind of reaffirmed that, uh, that policy that they were going to continue to do yield curve control. And, you know, the yen is really suffering as a result. Um, same with the same with the ECB. You know, they, they had a meeting last week, which was which was kind of well, two, I guess they had the meeting two weeks ago. And, and the funny thing was, is they discussed both buying more bonds and raising interest rates at, at the same meeting, which uh, kind of counterproductive policies. And then it wasn't even a week later, they had to have an emergency meeting as a follow up to that meeting because spreads, in other words, you know, certain sovereign bonds in Europe were, were gapping up higher. The, the spread yeah. between them and the, the German Bund was, was, yeah. break, was blowing out. And so they had to come up with a plan to kind of address that. And so, you know, we've kind of got, uh, on the one hand, we do have coordinated monetary policy uh, amongst some nations, but then you have huge divergent monetary policies and, uh, um, between other nations. And so it's a, it's a mess. It's just a mess, Suri. And I, and I, I do not believe that the, that the monetary authorities and the, the governments around the world have the, the skill set to, to, to manage through this properly. Um, and that's not to say they're all idiots, uh, yeah. even though many of them are. Um, I think they're I think they're typically smarter than people give them credit for, but that doesn't mean they don't make idiotic decisions and that doesn't mean they don't make mistakes. And I don't think that they will be able to manage their way out of this right. in a smooth fashion. Right. What exactly happens, I don't know, but I just don't think it'll be smooth. Right. And, you know, when it comes to places like Japan, so, you know, Japan is structurally speaking, it imports raw materials and then exports finished goods. And it's heavily dependent on uh, exporting more than what it imports. And. When we when you look at an economy like Japan, and when you see what the BOJ is doing, when the BOJ is remaining incredibly dovish in face of rising inflation, and this inflation is sort of the bad kind of inflation that comes along with higher import prices yeah. rather than you know higher you know higher real growth. Now, do you right. do you think what's going on in Japan is sort of wrong? As in, what the BOJ is doing is wrong? Do you think that you know they should allow interest rates to start rising, considering that the the yen has collapsed massively? as well as that we're seeing inflation go above 2%. Because what it seems is Kuroda-san seems to be celebrating the fact that you know, Japan is finally seeing some sort of inflation, regardless of whether the sources yeah. are good or bad. Well, so it's interesting you ask this question, and it's interesting in, in the way that you phrase it, uh, because I think a lot of people typically would phrase it the same way as, do you think what they're doing is bad? And to answer that question, it really depends on what your economic philosophy is, right? If you're a Keynesian, then you don't think what they're doing is bad. I'm a Johnson, you think so. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, but but if you're an, if if you have the basis of your the, the foundation of your economic thought is the Austrian school of economics, then of course you think that they're wrong. I, I try not to get too involved in right or wrong. I just try to figure out what's going to happen, regardless of whether it's right or wrong. And I, I think. From that perspective, I think that the Bank of Japan is going to continue. 
Um, the Bank of Japan uh, is not run by Austrian economists, and it will never be run by Austrian economists, or at least it will never be run with by Austrian economists without incredible amount of volatility taking place before that happens. Um, and so, I, you know, the, the reality is, is for 30 years, or whatever the number is, I'm just using 30 as a number, but uh, for close to 30 years, the Bank of Japan has been trying to stimulate inflation in Japan. Finally, they're getting some traction, right? <laughs> Finally, yields are actually starting to push up a little bit in Japan after years of trying to stimulate inflation. And now they finally have it. They're finally having some success and much of the market expects them to all of a sudden stop. So, you know, if you've been trying to do something for 30 years and it finally starts to work, are you going to stop just because somebody says, hey, we think you should stop? I, so I think it's unlikely that they're going to stop. And the problem is, is if they did stop, then that means interest rate. You know, if they're going to protect the yen, then that means they're going to stop defending the bond market. And if they stop defending the bond market, then interest rates start to rise and the whole country goes bankrupt. Um, I mean, this is, this is, it's really, really, to me, it's, it's, it's funny is not the right word. Ironic is perhaps, perhaps the right word is I'm constantly, again, how I remember how I said that I always hear about the fed, the fed, the fed, and I always hear about the dollars, the dollar, the dollar, the dollar, they're going to have to print so much money. The dollar is going to lose value and they can't possibly raise interest rates because then that'll bankrupt the country because we have so much debt. Everybody's so worried about these things that are going to one day happen to the dollar. And it's, Fair, you know, the, those comments and that analysis, there, there's actually nothing wrong with it because fundamentally it makes sense. But the, the problem is, is that all of these things that they're worried about happening to the dollar one day are already happening in Japan and in some ways happening in Europe. But I don't constantly hear, oh, the BOJ, the BOJ, the BOJ, or the ECB, the ECB. All I hear is the Fed, the Fed, the Fed, right? And, you know, but the, but the, the rubber is hitting the road now. Not maybe next year, not maybe two or three years from now, not 10 years. Like right now, we are, you know, Japan is having a big problem. And right now, Europe is having a big problem. Um, Japan has so much debt and they have, they have taken, and the banks, the insurance companies, the pension funds in Japan are incredibly heavily loaded with Japanese, either corporates or treasuries that are at 0% yields or lower or negative or very low yields. So if interest rates start to rise even a little bit in Japan, you know, the, the, the balance sheets on all these pension funds and insurance companies, banks, they get totally turned upside down and it puts them in a real bind. And then, then you get a banking system crisis, right? And so, you know, when you, when you have to choose between the two, either the currency or the bond market, typically the governments have to choose to save the bond market because they would rather have inflation and make the citizens suffer than have deflation and have the whole system come down. And so again, you know, people are saying the U.S. is going to have to decide, save the bond market or save the, the, the dollar. Fair. But in the meantime, it's a relative world. And this is already happening in Japan. It's already happening in Europe. And as a result, the dollar is getting stronger against these major currencies because we are not dealing with that right now. Now, we might have to at some point. It's likely that we are going to have to deal with that at some point. But right now, that is not an issue for the United States. Mm -hmm. Got it, got it. And, and you know, when it comes to, uh, well, you know, well, what you said earlier, so when it comes to what the BOJ is doing, you said that, you know, what the BOJ has been doing for 30 years, you know, finally, it finally seems to be working. 
do you think that you know eventually the uh, they would have to stop yield curve control because in a way they're in a dilemma so either they let the yeah. uh, either they yet uh, they let the yen continue falling and keep rates low or they stabilize the yen but then they have to allow yields to rise so do you think that well, do you think, I, I how, think it's how do you think that plays out sorry no, go well, I think they're probably so this is what Japan is dealing with is sort of what the now th this is where I think you know, all the countries around the world are kind of dealing with this in the same way or, or, or dealing with the same issue, and that is inflation. You know, when we were in the depths of COVID and even before that, you know, back in the global financial crisis, you know, the playbook was we are going to do QE. We're going to pin rates. When I say we, central, central banks are going to do QE. They're going to pin rates either at very, very low levels or even negative. They're going to do things to spur inflation and get the inflation rate higher than the, the, you know, the interest rate, which inflates away the purchasing power of the currency, and it makes the debt easier to pay off. And so, you know, and this, this, this some form of this, you know, process has been used for centuries by governments who always spend more than they can ever pay off, and inflating away the the obligations of the government. It's it's. It's a, it's, a, it's a strategy as old as time. Now, and, and over the last several years, the, the, it, many analysts have said, this is the playbook and this is exactly what they're going to do. And it, and it works extremely well on a spreadsheet. If you, you know, if you pin rates at zero and you have inflation at three, four, 5%, over a 10 year period, you can inflate away half of the debt. Makes a lot of sense. It's a lot easier to do it on a spreadsheet than it is to do it in real life. It's a lot easier to put the interest, the, the inflation rate at 4% and just leave it there than it is to get 4% inflation in real life and have it just stay there. It's kind of like the proverbial, you know, you know, toothpaste in the tube, right? It's hard to get just, you know, you, you stomp on it. It's hard to get just a little bit out or the ketchup. It's like the ketchup bottle, right? It's hard to get just a little bit of ketchup. You know, you shake it and shake it. Finally, it just comes pouring out. That, that's kind of like inflation. And so it's number one, it's very hard to just get a steady rate of inflation and hold it there at four or 5% for several years. The other thing that's hard to do is even if you were able to do that, it's very hard to get the populace, in other words, the citizenry who's being, whose currency is being debased to just sit there and take it. Now, again, if they could do kind of three to 5% just gradually consistently, then they could probably get away with it. Right. But again, because it's hard to do that and because inflation you know, will be very low and then all of a sudden it will come gushing out at 8%, 10%, 20%, whatever the number is, that causes a crisis in and of itself. And then you have the citizens pushing back against the monetary authorities. Again, if you're doing it on a spreadsheet and there's not somebody with a pitchfork standing outside your window, it works really well. But when the citizens push back and they don't like it and the politicians ultimately have to answer to... The citizens, it makes it harder, especially if you're in a republic or a democracy or some kind of a representative form of government. If you're in a dictatorship or some kind of a authoritarian regime, financial repression is much easier to pull off because you don't really care what the citizens say. You don't really care about their rights. They don't have a say, so to speak. And so that's another reason why, you know, I, I've said well, the, the, these issues are going to be harder to deal with in, in the U.S. than it is going to be in, you know, China or Russia or, you know, Turkey or somewhere where, where they can impose these types of um, policies uh, more freely. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think what's going to happen with Japan 
um, is that they are going to, and you're already starting to see some pushback. Some corporates are already starting to say, hey, you know, a weak currency is okay, but a crashing currency is not, you know, and we, we, we don't want the entire purchasing power of the yen to be lost. And I think you'll start to see some of the citizens push back a little bit. Um, I, you know, whether, and, and what will likely happen is at some point the yen is going to have a bear market rally. I mean, I think the yen is going much, much lower. Uh, I think it's good. It's at like 133 now or something. Um, I'm not even sure. Let me look. Um, you know, it's, it's in the 130s and I think it's probably 135, 135. Um, I think it's going to probably, I think it's easily go to 140 before the, before the Bank of Japan would even consider, you know, changing. Um, but ultimately, I think it's going to go to two, uh, 200. Um, I think it's going to go much lower. But at some point along the way, there's going to be a massive, very hard, very sharp bear market rally. And maybe that'll be because the the there'll be enough pressure put on the Bank of Japan to not just let the currency collapse, and you know perhaps they'll they'll say something or they'll 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 indicate that maybe they're thinking about cutting back on bond. They won't, yeah. but may, they won't actually do it. But they'll hint at it, yeah. and that that alone could cause a big bear market rally in the yen. Um, so I think it'll be a stair step. You know, I, I think I think it's heading towards crisis, but it won't just go there in a straight line. Got it. Or they'll be thinking about thinking about raising rates. So. <laughs> Yeah, right. Exactly. Yep. yep. Um, one more thing. So, you know, when it comes to gold, so, you know, what is the true purpose of physical gold in a portfolio? Because, you know, in your bio, uh, we are at Santiago EU Fund, you've written that you either believe in magic or you believe in math, you know, if you believe in math, buy gold in dollars. And when, yeah. when it comes to the role of gold, so, you know, when we look at the inflation that's happened over, say, the last 12 months, you know, gold has really not done much. It stayed pretty flat. Yeah. So, no, so you know, what, yep. so how does gold function in the portfolio? What's the role of gold, and you know, how do you know what is the sort of the profile of gold when it comes to? Um, well, uh, when it, when it, okay, go on. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, well, there's different there, there's different answers to this. Um, you know, a lot of people buy gold as an inflation hedge, and I think there there there's some truth to that. Um, I think when you have very low levels of inflate, I think there's a if you have negative rates or or even massive deflation, I think gold would actually do well because it'd be seen as a safe haven. I think there's a, I think there's a band between let's call it I don't know, one percent and three or four percent real you know uh, where inflation where gold isn't a great in inflation hedge, uh, but then if you get above that percent then it starts to become uh, inflation hedge again. Now we've seen surging uh, inflation over the last couple of years and gold did very well over the last couple of years. Uh, but now it, it's always forward looking, right? And so now, you know, the fact that uh, uh, central banks, at least some of them are starting to raise rates, um, the gold hasn't performed as well in those currencies. Um, but if you look, if gold in Europe, in European or Euro terms has done better than it has in dollar terms, gold in yen terms over the last year has done better, you know, in yen terms than it has in dollar terms. Um, I, I think part of the reason that it hasn't really fully broken out in dollar terms yet is, and this is the reason I own gold, is it's 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 a play on confidence in governments and the the ability of that uh, that that government to function, you know, effectively and um, efficiently. Um, it's a call option against the hubris of you know central bankers or monetary authorities. Um, I think when 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 a country's when people lose faith in a country's currency, that is when gold really really does well. And so I think it, when the system itself starts to come into question, that is when gold does really well because 
Not that I think that governments will adopt gold as a gold standard or, or, or the new monetary system, but gold will put itself forward as a potential you know, option uh, for a new monetary system. So you, know, you don't have to have a gold standard for gold to go back to $5,000 an ounce. Um, and, and in fact, I, I think that's ultimately where gold is going. I think gold's gonna you know, double from here over the next, I don't know, five, six years. I think that's very possible. Um, and so, you know, I, I own it as a, a hedge against a, a hedge against governments or a hedge against the uh, idiot politicians. However, however, you want to say that, I don't necessarily just buy it for inflationary terms. Although over to, over time, you know, you know, where inflation eats away the purchasing power of fiat currency, um, gold tends to hold its value over very long periods of time. So I, I think it's and the reason I say you either believe in math or you believe in magic is the math says that the the system itself is in trouble. Uh, the system itself, as it's currently designed, um, will eventually, you know, fall. Now that imminent and, uh, you know, eventual or, or, you know, is not the same thing, right? Um, it ultimately will, but it might, might take another five years, might take another 10 years. So it doesn't necessarily mean you need to buy gold because the system's going to collapse tomorrow. Right. But just from a mathematical perspective, it's an exponential system. All exponential systems eventually spike and then they eventually crash. And so I think, you know, so that, that's my point is if you think you can time it perfectly, well, good for you and you don't need to own gold, you just buy it the day before it happens. You know, I, I'm not that smart. Um, I don't know exactly when it's gonna happen. Uh, math tells me it's going to happen. And so I wanna have a portion of my portfolio prepared for it. Mm -hmm. Got it, got it. And, and, you know, when it, comes to, so when it comes to thinking through safe haven, so, you know, has the, tre has, has the treasury uh, sort of lost its role as a safe haven asset. So if you look at March 2020, for example, even though we were going to a period of deflation, there was mass selling of treasuries just to get dollars. And we're seeing yeah. something similar now, though right now it's driven more by expectations of inflation rising. But you know, is there a point where you know the 10-year uh, replays uh, gold as a safe haven preferred asset? And you know, is is there a chance of that happening? You know, when does that happen? And you know, what and what are your thoughts on the on treasury yields here? Do you think they're too high, too low? Well, I think uh, that right now you can actually get a yield by buying a ten-year treasury. Right, you buy a ten-year treasury, you get two two point three percent or something. You know, for, for years we talked about you know the it's 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 a return-free risk. You you're buying a bond, you get no yield, and you're taking the risk that the government will default. Um, now you can actually get the, uh, you know, over 2% on your, if you buy a treasury. And, you know, this is in itself causing problems because now you can get as, just as good a yield on a U.S. treasury as you can on, you know, a Chinese treasury or some of these other treasuries that were yielding more. And so that's pulling more capital into the U.S. and into the dollar. And therefore the dollar goes higher. Um, one thing I would point out on, you know, going back to March 2020, you know, People will say, well, even in March 2020, treasuries weren't a safe haven because, you know, the bonds were falling as people rushed to get dollars. It would have been a much bigger problem for the U.S. if people were selling their bonds and putting the money into gold. But they weren't. They were selling bonds and putting their money into dollars. They were holding dollars. So if you remember, even gold was getting sold. So everything was going down except for the dollar in March of 2020. And so if, again, if, 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 if they were completely trying to get out of the currency, that's different than if you're trying to get out of a, 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 a currency that has a longer maturity, right? They were basically staying in the same currency, but they were coming down on the maturity scale, right? They were going, down, going from a 10-year bond to a one-day bond. 
right? Or a reserve or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. um, so they were, they, were, they, were, they were dropping their duration exposure, but they weren't changing their currency. The other thing you have to remember is that this wasn't happening in a vacuum where US treasury rates were rising, bond prices were falling, and everywhere else in the world was fine. That wasn't the case. You know, rates were rising and you know, bonds in Europe were getting sold and Japan were getting sold. And so it wasn't, it wasn't like the US was having a fiscal crisis and the rest of the world was rosy and you could just go park your money over there. Um, and and I, I, I would expect the next time we have a crisis or some kind of a global liquidity event, I would expect similar actions. I would expect the, you know, treasuries likely get liquidated to a certain extent, but I expect foreign treasuries to get liquidated even more. I expect gold would get liquidated because everybody's rushing to get the underlying collateral, which is dollars, right? Um, and so until there is a new system that everybody can leave the dollar system and go to that system, then that's what I expect to happen. And I just don't see a viable alternative to that. You know, the world, if we get into another liquidity event, the world is not going to rush into Russian rubles. They're just not, you know, they're not going to rush into Brazilian reals. They're not going to rush into, I do not believe they're going to rush into the euro or the, or the yen or the yuan at the expense of the dollar and in the next crisis. Um, so, you know, I, I, I understand the point that people make when they say that the, that the bonds themselves came into trouble mm -hmm. uh, in 2020. Yeah. And I think that's very possible. Again, I think ultimately my, my thesis is that we will have a sovereign currency and a sovereign debt crisis. And in a sovereign debt crisis, sovereign yields rise and sovereign bonds get liquidated. And I don't necessarily remove the United States Treasury from that. It's just that I think that the U.S. Treasury, so in other words, yields could be going up in the U.S., but they could be going up even more in other parts of the world. And so, you know, even though the, the Treasury may be falling in price on a relative basis to the rest of the world, it's still the safe haven, mm. um, you know, if, if you're comparing sovereigns to each other. And I expect that to be the case the next time as well. Now, it's possible I'm wrong. Um, you know, maybe maybe the world will move to another system. Maybe they will move to another asset. Maybe next time gold will go higher and it won't get liquidated. But uh, you know, but th that's why I say the two most important assets you can own are, are dollars and gold. And um, yeah. I, I think if you own those two things, you will at least get through the crisis. Now, this is the other thing I should point out: is a lot of times people will say you want gold for the crisis. So this is where I'm a little, I have a little bit different opinion on this. I don't believe you want gold for the crisis. I think you want dollars for the crisis. I think you want food for the crisis. I think you want a uh, uh, shelter for the crisis. I think you, you, you need the things that you can use in the very short term to get through the crisis. Gold is so that when you come out of the crisis on the other side, you still have some capital intact, whereas your neighbors and your friends and everybody else does not. And then you can use that gold, that capital that survived the tsunami or survived the earthquake, survived the, the, you know, whatever crisis it was, you still have capital intact that you can then go deploy and, and start to, you know, build up a, a, a nice portfolio of distressed assets. Um, but in, in the heat of the moment, I don't think gold is your primary uh, desire. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. And, and, you know, when, uh, you, you know, you also mentioned that, you know, when, when, when you say, you know, math versus magic, the math's just that there's a, there's a good chance that over say the next five, 10, 20 years, the whole 
um, dollars, uh, the whole system ends up blowing up. And you know, that's why you're owning yeah. gold. And so in a, in a future monetary system, what do you think you know, would be the role that gold plays? You know, would it actually come back well, as an important monetary asset? Would it just play a role of the yeah. safe haven? How do you think? Well, I don't think that governments will willingly go back to gold. It, they might be forced to in order to restore confidence. I mean, that's the thing with gold. Gold has been around for thousands of years, has been a reserve asset, a store of value, however you want to describe that for thousands of years. And it's kind of an inherently accepted as a store of wealth around the whole world. You know, it's, it, every, everywhere around the world has kind of accepted this historically. And so if, if the monetary authorities need to bring some legitimacy back to it because they've lost their own legitimacy, and they need to do something that the whole world would kind of readily accept without questioning it too much. I think gold would be a somewhat, it would maybe be, not saying it would be easy, but it would maybe be easier to use gold than many other things because mm -hmm. it is so widely accepted. I don't think they'll do it willingly. And I don't think that they would just do gold. My guess is, you know, they'll try to reset the system. There's, it'll still be fiat in some form or another. Um, and I think gold may be part of it, but I don't think gold will be the whole thing. So maybe it's some kind of a global basket of currencies that also has a, you know, gold and oil or some other kind of, you know, commodity component to it. I don't really know, to, to be honest. Uh, I, I think, uh, I, I just don't think, I think if we go into a big crisis, here's the thing is a lot of people think you go into a crisis and the government gets weaker. That, that's sort of true. And that can certainly happen. But a lot of times in a crisis, a government gets stronger right? Because the people don't have anything and they need somebody to give them something. And the only group that can give them something is the government, right? And so you typically in a crisis, governments get more powerful, not less powerful. Um, now, it doesn't mean that they get more powerful economically, but maybe they get more powerful, you know, from a social perspective or from a human rights perspective or from, you know, maybe the government uh, powers increase and the citizens' rights decrease. And so I don't think that, you know, that they will just uh, have to go back to a non-fiat standard. They might have yeah. to. If the whole system comes down, they, they might be, like I said, they might be forced to do that to restore confidence, but it won't be their desire to do it that way. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, moving on to talking about, uh, talking specifically about the monetary system, you know, one thing. Uh, well, you know, one thing that I've seen mentioned a couple of times on Twitter has been the FDIC limit. And, you know, how important is that to the monetary system? And, you know, or, you know, what impact would changing that have on the system? Yeah. Well, I think it kind of depends on how they would change it. I think the reason it's important, and here, here's, kind of the funny, here's kind of the funny thing is, you know, with FDIC, right? If, if something happens, the government's going to make you whole. It's an insurance policy, right? Back by the government. If, if, if you have whatever, what is the FDIC limit? I think it's 200,000 or something. 250, yeah, 250,000. 250, okay, 250. So something happens and your 250 is gone. Well, the government's going to give you your 250 back, right? Okay. But think about it. They're doing that with money that they printed or that they conjured out of thin air. So while you might get your 250 back, it probably won't be, it will probably won't have the same purchasing power as the 250 that you lost, right? So, um, but, but it, what, it, what it does, what it does is it's a, I don't know, it's, it's something to encourage people to keep their money in the banking system, right? It, 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 it's there to, to stop the proverbial run on the bank. Again, you know, in, in a world where, you know, it's not, we do not have fully reserved banking. In other words, you know, you have some, core, some form of fractional reserve banking, where you know banks 
keep some money in reserve and, and loan out more than they have. If everybody comes to the bank on the same day to withdraw their money, there's just not enough money. It's like musical chairs. If 50 people come to take a chair and there's only 40 chairs, 10 people are not going to get a chair. It's just simple math, right? It's the same thing with the uh, same thing with the banks. And so what they do is, you know, the government said, well, if you get there and there's no chair, we're, we'll give you another chair. We'll go build you a chair and we'll give you one. We'll put another chair into the room. I mean, and, and by, by, by you knowing that there's always going to be a chair there, it discourages you from going there and trying to take a chair in the first place, right? And so, you know, they kind of sort of need to have that in there um, in order to kind of encourage people to, to see the, their bank as a safe haven. Mm -hmm. So if the, if, if the government were to increase it, then maybe that encourages more people to put their money in the bank or more likely to keep their money in the bank. Maybe not put more in there, but more likely to keep it in there. But if they were to remove it or if they were to drop it, then that would probably be seen as a negative, right? And then you would be less likely to keep your money in, in the banking system. And so um, I think it's an important part of it. It's something that I that doesn't really factor into my analysis a whole lot uh, because it's kind of an in-game scenario type thing, <laughs> but uh, you know, kind of a bank run is about as bad as a situation as it could get for a bank. But it's certainly something to keep in mind. Like okay. if one bank had, if one if if one bank had, you know, FDIC insurance and the other one did not, then I think more than likely the the consumer would choose to go with the one that's insured than the one that isn't. Got it. Got it. Okay, and one more thing. So when it comes to um, so so when it comes to the the Fed and its reserve requirement. You know, we've uh, you know people like you, Jeff Snyder, etc. I've talked a lot about how you know reserves are not exactly important to the way banks lend. But do you think that one, the Fed should be increasing reserve requirements considering we're seeing inflation right now? And you know, if not, you know, why has the Fed not done so? Well, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not really sure why they haven't done so. Um, I, I think that would be one way to certainly curb. Um, or to help potentially curb inflation. Um, you know, I think there's some misconception. Well, I know there's a lot of misconception about bank reserves, what they are, how they work. Um, and, and I have kind of been caught up in this storm of, you know, what they are and how they work and is it our bank reserves money or not. And, and some people will then say, well, Brent thinks that they don't even matter. It, it, it's not that they don't matter. It's just that they don't work the way that most people think that they work, uh, but they do matter. Um, and you know, to be clear, banks do not lend out reserves. If they have reserves, they don't take the, that actual reserve and give it to somebody else. It, it doesn't work that way, but they do use it as collateral to make more loans. Um, but in a, in, in a system with no reserves, you actually don't need the reserve to make the loan, right? And so there is no reserve requirement. But if they did, the other, the, I think part of the reason they, are, they have not raised reserve requirement, and the, the, this is kind of where it gets a little bit controversial too, and we should, we should talk about this to a certain extent because uh, it relates to Japan as well. Um, we are not seeing high levels of inflation because lending is out of control. Banks are not creating an incredible amount of new money via loans, and therefore that is driving inflation. Um, part of the thing that has driven the inflation over the short term is not just the government stimulus and sending checks to people, 
but it also is because of supply chain shutdowns and it's 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 uh it's cost push inflation as opposed to demand pull inflation what i mean is if the supply is constrained and you still have demand then price rises right if you have if you have ample supply but huge demand then that is demand pull right but this is cost put this is a situation where um you know manufacturers or producers cannot get the material that they need to produce their product and so they have to pay up to get that material and then that gets passed on to the consumer and so i think you know there's some people out there that say you know the reason that we have high inflation is because the government printed all this money. There's other people out there that say it's not because they printed the money, it's because they shut down the entire world economy and the supply chains crashed. The truth is probably somewhere in between there, but I don't think anybody could realistically say that it's all because of the central banks, because over the last year, central banks stopped printing, right? Let's just use the Fed as an example. A year ago, Sri, if we were having this conversation a year ago, the far and away consensus view that you kind of got laughed out of the room if you suggested otherwise was that the government would always do QE. They would never stop. They would never stop buying bonds. They would never do QE. They would never, and they would never raise rates. Well, all three of those things have now happened a year later, right? And so it's one of those things, never say never, but yet we still have inflationary pressures, right? So if the government is no longer sending out the stimulus checks and no longer doing QE and no, and actually starting to do QT, how can we still have inflationary pressures if all of it was just due to the money printing, quote unquote, right? Well, the, part of the reason is because supply chains do play a role in inflation. Um, now, again, I think there's, it's probably a combination of the two that led, led to this, um, you know, inflationary pressures that we've had, but it's not strictly um, the monetary side of it. You know, a year ago, one of the most popular things to post on Twitter or social media or FinTwit or however you want to call it was year over year M2 charts that showed this huge spike, right? I haven't seen a year over year M2 chart posted in a long time. And the reason is because it no longer fits the narrative because now it's crashing, right? Now M2 is still increasing, but the rate of change is crashing. And so those are no longer popular charts, but yet we still have inflationary pressures, which shows it's not just from the central banks. The, the supply chains are a big part of it. And so, um, you know, I think I think that will take a while to work out. And this, this is part of the reason, you know, when I was saying that it relates to Japan, I think part of the reason that Japan, you know, they did these crazy QE and MMT policies for 20, 30 years and couldn't get inflation. Part of the reason that they have now been able to get inflation is the supply chain problems, right? It's not just demand pull, it's cost push. And so, you know, I think it's that, that, that some of those pressures are going to be relieved um, as they kind of work out the supply chains, but it's not going to go back the way it was two years ago, because now we're moving towards two supply chains as opposed to one global supply chain, you know, you know, there the countries around the world are not cooperating as well as they used to. The flow of goods is not as free. You know, Russia has a number of commodities that the rest of the world needs. They're not exporting them as freely as they were before. That will cause, you know, price rises. And so you end up getting squeezed, right? The, the top down revenue, because there's no global growth or very little global growth, um, you know, the top down revenue is coming down, but now the bottom line input costs are going up. So the profits are getting squeezed. Right. And then you get into this stagflationary environment, which is really, really a bad environment. 
And so, you know, then that's kind of why I think we have more pain to come. Whether we go into a recession or not, I think is irrelevant. Uh, we're going to have pain regardless of whether we're in a recession or not. I don't know if that answers your question or not. I kind of yeah, got off on a tangent there, but. <laughs> yeah, it does. And so, you know, as you stated, you know, there are two broad causes of inflation. And, you know, one thing that, you know, it's, you know most people have argued either supply chain or, you know, money printing, even though yeah. it's probably a combination of both. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, one thing that if you if you pull up the loans and leases chart on your Bloomberg or on Fred, you see that until yeah. mid uh, mid twenty twenty, roughly April twenty twenty one, yeah, they had a big fall since the start of the pandemic. But then, since then, they've actually picked up. And if you look at the chart, they just picked it a little bit. Yep. And and if you look at the chart, you know, we see that we're we're finally seeing the level of loans and leases above uh, the pre pandemic. Level. So, do you think that actually has something to do with inflation? Do you think that's that's important? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think I think I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. Um, you know, if you saw if you saw that spiking, um, you would probably get even more inflation, right? Because there would be even more demand for the goods uh, than there is. Um, but uh, but yeah, yeah. I, and so, if if they wanted to counteract that, then having some kind of a reserve requirement um, would potentially be a way to kind of stifle that inflation. Mm -hmm. Yep. One thing that, you know, well, one thing that people suggest is that, you know, when the Federal Reserve raises rates for the U.S., it's actually raising rates for the global economy, it's raising rates for the world. Yeah. And is there actually a way for the Fed, at least in this environment, to raise rates in the domestic economy without destroying the global economy? <laughs> not, in my opinion, not really. Um, well, there's always ways that they can attempt. It's just whether or not it's successful. Um, now, can they tighten, you know, say, the, can, can they tighten um, conditions in the U.S. without bringing up the global economy to put it another way? I, I don't believe so. You know, this gets into the Triffin's dilemma, right? If you have a country's domestic currency that is also used as the global reserve currency, eventually the needs of the global economy will come into conflict with the needs of the domestic economy. And that is right where we are at right now. The domestic economy needs higher rates. The rest of the world cannot afford a tighter dollar supply and higher rates. And so, um, again, when the Bank of Brazil raises interest rates, it doesn't really hurt anybody in Europe. Maybe it hurts a few people, but it doesn't really cause a global event. You know, when uh, China raises interest rates, it might affect a few regional players, but it doesn't have a huge effect on the overall world. Same in Europe, same in Africa, same in you know Japan or wherever it is. But if the U.S. raises rates, it's a big problem. The reason it's a big problem is because like 80% of global transactions takes place in dollar or dollar financing. A lot of it takes place in the euro dollar market. Um, you know, and uh, you get euro dollar funding, euro dollar funding ultimately is priced off of you know the Federal Reserve because that's the only supplier of dollars. Um, to the world. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a big problem when the U.S. raises rates. It's effectively raising rates on the rest of the world. And, it's, you know, I think that, to be honest with you, I think that's part of the reason why they are raising rates. Not only do they want to bring down inflation, but I think they want to put other countries in a place where they, the U.S. has negotiating power over the top of them. And, you know, the dollar and U.S. interest rates are, are maybe the most effective. They're probably a more effective tool than parking an aircraft carrier outside the coast of another country. Um, it's more powerful. It affects more people and it can have even more devastating consequences. And so in a way, uh, the U.S.'s trump card ends up being the fact that the Fed can issue yeah. swap lines in exchange for something. 
Well, that's, you know, that, that, that would be a way that they could raise interest rates domestically and not cause a crisis outside as they would, is if they provided extra liquidity via a swap line. Um, and this is what they did in 2020. So I, I'm not going to sit here and say that it can't be done again. But, you know, I don't think they would be, if we went back to a March of 2020 type environment, I don't think they would still be raising rates and then providing unlimited swap lines to the rest of the world. It wouldn't make sense to do that. I'm not, I'm not saying that central banks have to make sense. They do a lot of things that don't make sense. You know, again, Europe is trying to do this exact thing. They're trying to raise rates on one hand, but continue doing QE on another hand. And so you get these con contradictory policies within the same central bank. And, and my whole point with all this is that central bankers are very powerful and very smart. And they have a, well, whether they're smart or not, I guess that's, that's up for debate. But um, I just, I think it's going to get away from them. And I think a lot of people believe that if the Fed loses control, that means that the dollar falls in value. And in my opinion, it's completely the opposite. Everything the Fed has done for the last several years has been done to try to weaken the dollar so that it didn't go up and wreck the whole world economy. Mm -hmm. So if they remain in control, you know, them remaining in control is the dollar not spiking, going lower and providing liquidity to the rest of the world. If they lose control, that means the dollar is going higher and getting away from them and they've lost the ability to control it. And so, you know, yep. if you think that the central banks are going to fail, I would not be bearish dollars be bullish dollars yes sir um so the other thing uh is that so the last time we spoke you know we spoke about we spoke a little bit about the hong kong dollar and so the hong kong dollar um for anyone who's not aware is pegged to the u.s dollar and brent is short that peg um and so you know what so you know what i'm curious about is how does the peg hold out you know what do you know what, with what we're seeing right now and you know one higher import costs and two you know what's going on in china so a lot of people yeah. have talked about one politically to the lockdowns in Shanghai, plus three, the fact that China may well be facing some sort of a food shortage in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so the short answer is I don't think the peg will hold. Um, you say, how, how, how can the peg hold or you know, how does the peg work? And the short answer is I don't think it does work. It's working right now, but I don't think it ultimately will. And that's why we're betting against it. Um, but you know, I think the issue is that in order for them to maintain the peg, dollars need to continually come in to China or Hong Kong, and they use those dollars to support their own economy. Um, now, a lot of people will say they have a lot of dollar reserves that they've built up over the last 30 years. They can use those to support the currency for a very long time. That is true. However, that 400 billion or whatever the number is that they have in currency reserves, foreign currency reserves that are dollar based, they're not just sitting there in a checking account in cash that they can turn around and use. A lot of that stuff is invested in long term investments, you know, dollar based long term investments. And, it, you know, when, when the economy comes under pressure, you can't just liquidate the, the liquidate those overnight. And if you do liquidate them overnight, you're not getting the best price. And so that 400 uh, billion number is, is likely inaccurate in some kind of a crisis. The other thing is that um, if money, they, they could use those reserves for a while, but eventually those reserves would run out. And so they, they need more capital to come back into China. Um, and if capital doesn't start to come into China and they just keep using their reserves to um, support the currency, at some point they're gonna say, 
why do we keep spending this money on a peg that is event we're eventually going to run out of money and not be able to peg it? So why should we spend our last hundred billion defending the peg when we know that once the hundred billion's gone, the peg's going to break anyway? And so I, I just think it, I, I just don't think it's going to last. And I think it's the biggest asymmetric trade in, in, in the world. And because I, I think it, if, if they let it go, if they let the peg go, I would expect the Hong Kong dollar to depreciate by 20% immediately and maybe end up being 40 or 50% uh, against it. And so, and part of the reason is, is, you know, they, they, you know, they, they've got a huge housing market, a real estate bubble, you know, as global interest rates rise, it puts pressure on there. Um, they've got these, uh, you know, one, uh, China's kind of taken over Hong Kong and it put these, you know, really stringent rules and restrictions in there. So, you know, the, the travel there is not what it was. They've got very strong COVID protocol. So, you know, there's not as many tourists showing up. Since there's not as many tourists showing up, they're not as spending as much money on luxury goods. And so the retail sector is under pressure you know they're a big tourist hub spot or they were and you know nobody's traveling there anymore so the hotels are struggling um and then china itself is i believe in more trouble than many people believe so the hong kong banks that have exposure to china have exposure that way so we we just think it's not a situation that uh, is long-term viable um now if they let the currency go and and everything you know get neutralized from a currency perspective then maybe that would um, be an opportunity to go buy some distressed assets in Hong Kong or China or whatever it is. But, but until that happens, we, we would not want exposure there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and uh, you know, so and you know, speaking of trade, you know, you you also previously mentioned that you were you know short the Turkish lira, and that's played out incredibly well. And you know, when it comes to countries like Turkey, Sri Lanka, etc., you know, how do you think the end game plays out? I mean, Sri Lanka is obviously slightly more idiosyncratic, but broadly speaking, most of these emerging markets tend to have tend to be importing food and energy, and then you know they they have some sort of mismanagement uh, when it comes to government policy. And so, you know, what do you, how do you think this plays out? You know, will we see some sort of an Arab Spring type yeah. event in a lot of these places? Yeah, I mean, that, that means three, that's the milkshake, right? What's happening in Turkey and Sri Lanka, I think is going to happen on a global basis. Um, it's playing out in those areas, those, those countries, even though they're, they're not in the United States, they're still reliant on U.S. dollars and U.S. dollar financing. Um, so, you know, whether, whether they like the U.S. dollar or not, it doesn't matter. They need them. Um, and, you know, commodities are still priced in dollars. They're still imported in dollars. And the, not only... Does the, do those countries have to pay up to get the dollars? But now those commodity that they're buying, they're they're higher in price too because we've got this uh, supply chain disruption and inflation from that perspective, right? And so you know, and so the, how do they counteract these? Well, they print their own local currency in order to they print their local currency to go buy dollars to then buy the imports. Well, what does that do? That pushes their own currency down. Right. And so therefore you get the milkshake, whereas, you know, the dollars going higher and their currencies are going lower. And so uh, I think what, what you've seen in Sri Lanka, what, what, what we've seen in Turkey, uh, what we've seen in a number of these other peripheral countries, um, I think it's going to continue to pick up. I think it's going to happen in more countries. You're starting, like I said, you're starting to see these tremors of this same thing happening in places like Japan. Um, so I, I still expect that we are going to enter a slow a global sovereign debt and currency crisis. I've been saying that for several years. I've been wrong. Um, but uh, this is where, you know, we get back to imminent and inevitable. You know, it, it may not be imminent, but I think it's inevitable. And I don't think it's the, a crisis. I, I don't think it's a situation you can afford to ignore. Um, if I'm wrong and this crisis never develops, you should be just fine. But if I'm right, even a little bit, and it develops, and you're not prepared for it, it could have a significant uh, impact on your life. 
Mm, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, sort of the impact ends up being nonlinear. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, one more thing. So when we look at a lot of the liquidity measures in the system, we see that, for example, that TED spread is widening. And then on top of that, if you look at places like Europe, we're seeing yeah. that, yeah, the BTP bond spread is, uh, you know, blowing apart. And yeah. you know, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? You know, do you think that's going to continue? And do you think, you know, this is going to, you know, how far, you know, does this liquidity continue to tighten before yeah. either the Fed or these, or before central yeah. banks start reversing course? Well, it's interesting that you bring those up because that's that, those are the types of things that I think need to really blow out before the central banks reverse course. Um, I think a lot of people will disagree with me when I say that I don't think the Fed cares that the S and P is down twenty or twenty five percent, as long as the funding markets are still working, as long as Treasury auctions are still you know going off okay, as long as you know the Euro dollar market hasn't completely blown up. Whether you know whether the the S and P's at you know thirty six hundred or four thousand, I don't think it makes a, that big a difference to them. Um, now, if it crashes far enough, then of course they will come in. But what I I don't think they're going to come in and reverse course until those things that you were just talking about spreads the uh, rates until those start to blow up until the funding markets blow up and force the Fed to stop. I think the Fed's going to continue on. And at what level does does that happen? I don't know. I, I really don't. Maybe they can get another one or two hikes off. Maybe they can get four hikes off. Maybe they can only get one more hike off. I, I really don't know. But I, I would expect, again, everybody says, when does the U.S. economy blow up? Um, I think the global economy will blow up earlier than the U.S. economy will blow up. And may, may, again, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I can, what I cannot figure out, Sri, that, and this is really why it comes down to why the investment exposure we have is in the United States. And that is primarily in the United States because it's possible that the whole world goes down together, in which case I'm no worse off being in the U.S. than I am being somewhere else. Um, it's possible the whole world gets better together. In which case, you know, I'm no worse off being in the United States. And if I am worse off, if Europe grows more or if Asia grows more than the U.S. and you and our portfolio is up 10 or 12 percent. And, you know, had I been up in one of those countries, I'd be up 14 percent. Well, yeah, that's annoying that I'm trailing a little bit, but it's not like life is too bad. Right. So in that situation, I, I prefer just to be in the U.S. Um, the third thing that could happen is that the U.S. could kind of muddle through and do OK. And the rest of the world goes into crisis. I think that's very possible and probably maybe even probable. So in that situation, I'm happy to be having mostly exposure in the United States. The last thing that could happen is the US could go into a massive recession and the rest of the world could do great. Now that is possible, but it's highly improbable. And in fact, it's such a low probability, I can't figure out how it actually happens. Now I'm never gonna say anything's impossible because you know, never say never. But in that situation, I think there would be such a dramatic change as I, I would be able to see them and, 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 and reallocate. But as of right now, I don't see that as a possibility. So, uh, or at least a very, very low probability. And so as a result, you know, I, I think having uh, uh, client assets allocated to US assets is, is a better play than having them allocated elsewhere. Yeah, that's fair, that's fair, that makes sense. Um... And so, uh, and so, you know, uh, that fourth situation, you know, that you talked about is, is a, is of low likelihood. But in that, but in that case, you know, the wouldn't wouldn't be against the uh, divergence between what the U.S. needs and what the world needs, because the U.S. would need lower rates, but the world may not need yeah. lower rates. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Um, all right. Well, all right. You know, uh, you know, to wrap up the to to wrap up the podcast. Um, you know, when do you think that we are just at the start of you know what you've described as the dot milkshake theory or the dot milkshake hypothesis? And do you think you know we've got a lot higher to go when it comes to the DXY? Uh, yeah, I think I think the dollar is going to go a lot higher. You know, it's it's probably going to take a breather here. It's had a really good six to nine month run. You know, it's at a twenty year high. Typically, you know, at the, at the beginning of a hiking cycle, it's funny, like once the Fed starts to raise it, you know, the, the dollar rises on anticipation of rate hikes. Typically, once they start hiking, the dollar typically takes a little bit of a breather, which I, you know, will, would not shock me at all. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that you can afford to just bet against the dollar here because, you know, one or two things happen and the dollar could be at 110, 115 in, in, in a matter of days. Uh, yeah. I always remind people um, that in, in 2020, at the end of February, uh, of 2020, the dollar was at, uh, you know, 97 or 98. On March 9th, it had fallen four or 5% and it was at 94. And everybody said, see, here we go. The Fed's, the Fed's reversing course. You know, the dollar's going to go to, you know, 80, whatever it was. And 10 days later on March 19th, it was at 103. So, you know, it went up 10% in a week or 10 days or whatever it was. That's what happens when you get a margin, global margin call on the dollar. And if, if you think that the world economy is on the verge of recession, you don't want to be short dollars. Um, and so that's kind of where I think we're at. I think we're going to go into this crisis. Uh, I think this is going to, and that's the other thing is I think a lot of people think this is, if we go into this crisis, it's all going to play out over six to nine months. Uh, I, I don't, I think this is going to take several years to play out. So, you know, the dollar will have a run, it'll pull back, they'll get everything under control. Then it'll have another run. They'll, they'll put some new policy in that'll, you know, make it pull back a little bit. But ultimately I think the dollar is going to go a lot, lot higher. I think it's very likely that we revisit the highs from the, the mid eighties, maybe mm-hmm. even higher. Uh, but then it'll all, it, at, at some point that'll end. And the last thing you'll want to have is dollars and us dollar assets. Uh, but until until we've reached that point, uh, you know, yeah. or until I've seen some concrete changes that take that off the table, I think that's the most likely scenario. Yeah, yeah. Brent, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was, it was absolutely awesome talking to you, getting your thoughts on these crazy markets. Happy to talk to you, man. Hope you have a great summer. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.